Well, if you're just joining us, I'm Vic. This is Taylor. Good morning. Um, <laughs> Afternoon, almost. Almost. We're getting there. We, uh, we're closing in on the end of a journey through the Gospel of John that we started back in August. And uh, we have been uh, moving toward this moment, really, uh, since then. If you have your Bible, find John chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you're uh, new to the whole church Jesus thing, let me suggest to you an app. You need this app anyway, even if you already have a Bible, the version app. Uh, you can take a minute and download it, and you can, it's really easy to use, a fantastic app, uh, and you find John 18 on that app, and you can follow along with us. If... Uh, it is really a great app, although this morning at the 9 o'clock service, it completely crashed on me and I had no notes. Uh, but we've recovered since then, oh, so man. don't worry. Um, now, we have moved with Jesus and John through this gospel uh, and seen Jesus do some things, perform some miracles and say some things that give evidence and weight to the reason John wrote the book that he gives us in, the chapter, in chapter 20. Uh, John says in chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have eternal life. So that's the purpose for writing the book. And we've seen Jesus turn water into wine. We've seen him uh, heal paralyzed people. We've seen him from a distance of several miles heal uh, an official's son. We've seen him feed 5,000 people with a happy meal. We've, uh, we've seen him walk on water. We've seen him give sight to the blind and even raise the dead. Some amazing miracles recorded in John's gospel. We've heard Jesus make claims. He's claimed to be the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, and the true vine. And all of these are pointing to this truth that John says he's trying to drive home for us, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that you need to believe in him so you can have eternal life. And we come to John 18 yeah. today. At the end of a rather lengthy teaching section, uh, and a prayer by Jesus for himself, his disciples, and us. And, and as we get to John 18 today, the time for teaching and praying has come to an end. And I think at, at first look, whenever I started to look at this passage, you see that Jesus made all these claims. He performed all these miracles. And what's interesting is at first look, whenever you see it, you're like, man, that, is that true? Is that is that right? Is that really all that he did? Is that true? Because it seems like it's about to come to an end. Mm. Whenever we're looking here and we're about to see what's about to happen to Jesus, it looks like it's all about to fall apart at first glance. But I think as we dive in, we'll really get to just see and behold what Jesus is doing for us. So this morning may be a little bit different um, of a sermon than what yes. you're usually used to. I think... When you come to church, most times we expect to be encouraged and given an application point. Man, I got to go out and do this this week. Um, but, but spoiler alert, before we get there, we're not Jesus in this passage. That's right. Um, really, when we look at ourselves, we are Peter. We are the Jews. We are Pilate here in this passage. 
Um, And so really this morning, what I want our frame of mindset to be is kind of what John the Baptist said in John early in the book. He said, uh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So just just really take in what Jesus is doing for you right here this morning. Yeah. So let me, let me do a little setup for you and then we'll read the text. So after Jesus prays with his disciples, uh, they, uh, he leads them out of the house where they had had the last supper into the Jerusalem night. It was a little chill in the air and they walk about a mile where they would have to walk through the shadow of the temple, down through the Kidron Valley, up to a garden in Gethsemane. And it is a place where Jesus gathered with his disciples often. And he's there with his friends in this sacred space, in this moment, uh, spending time with them. And it's quiet and dark on the edge of town. And the silence is broken by approaching footsteps. And that's where we land this morning. So Taylor, read, right here in, read. in verse one, starting in chapter 18. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Who is it that you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you that I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? So things look pretty bleak, right? This uh, intimate gathering has been interrupted by a, a contingent that come bearing torches and weapons. Uh, pro- somewhere around 500 soldiers have come to arrest a carpenter and some fishermen. It's uh, astonishing, really, when you think about it, and it looks a little uh, bleak. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is firmly in control of this moment. And in and fact, think, like, in verse 4, he, he in verse four, tells us. Jesus does something that most criminals don't normally do. <laughs> like, I, I can think back to two uh, major, really terrible events that I've, that I've seen in my own life. That's 9-11 and uh, the bombing at the Boston Marathon. And those two criminals, uh, when they were hunted down... We didn't find them out in the open, yeah. in the streets. They were holed up underground, hiding from the authorities. But Jesus does the exact opposite, and he comes out and asks them, who, who are you looking for? What, what's going on here? And I think we see that Jesus wasn't trying to hide or get out of being arrested. 
Um, And I think he further shows that he is in complete control in verse six whenever he says, I am he. He's claiming deity. He's showing them that this is the son of God and they all fall to the ground. Yeah, one one of the, one of the, Cool things is in verse four, he says, it says, knowing everything that was about to happen, right? This is not a guy who's out of control, right? He knows. And, and as Taylor pointed out, he walks out and, and controls the situation. He says to the guards, this is an armed guard, he says to them, who are you looking for? And the, the whole I am thing, they fall down and, and he goes, all right, he asks them twice, so he makes them repeat, we are here for Jesus of Nazareth. He goes, that's me, so you're, you are going to leave these guys alone. He, he's commanding the soldiers, and he tells Peter, put your sword away. I, I'm in control of this situation. Yeah, I, I, I kind of like to look at some of the other people here. Like, Think about the disciples. They're sitting there in the garden with Jesus. They, they've just left, and they hear these footsteps coming. And this wasn't 10, 15, 20 people. This is probably 500 people coming with weapons to arrest them. All right, so the disciples were probably pretty scared, probably terrified. And then Jesus says, I am he, and the soldiers fall to the ground. I, I mean, I can't get over that because the only group that was probably more scared than the disciples are the soldiers who are like, Wait, we're about to arrest this guy? Yeah, and we, we're not given the reason they fall to the ground. It could be a couple of reasons. One could be that maybe just for a moment, we get a glimpse of the divine majesty of Jesus, like the full godness of Jesus pops out for a moment, and you just can't stand in the presence of God. Or it could be these guys, when they hear, I am he, they finally put together, wait, we're about to arrest and lay hands on a dude that can control the weather and raise the dead. That could be scary. But they, nonetheless, it's clear they're not in control. But Jesus willingly comes forward and tells, he says, Peter, put away your sword. I've got to go drink the cup. And the cup is the, is the cup of wrath reserved for the enemies of God, we're told in the Old Testament. So, so Jesus is arrested here, and this, this seems like a, a big tragedy. Like the, the Savior of the world has just been arrested He's not in control anymore, and it, and it seems like there's no purpose. Right. But really what some people meant for tragedy, there was purpose here. And really I think that we can all look back at our own lives and see we all have some garden or Gethsemane moments. We can all look back and see we have these moments in life where everything's spiraling out of control, nothing's in order, We have no idea what's going on. That could be a change in major or a change in school or you're just in over your head. But really through looking at these events, we know that Jesus is in complete control. And so in your moments, I want you to know that you can find rest in the fact that Jesus controls your life. He's in charge of your destiny. So just whenever we think about these garden moments, This may not change your situation or what's going on, but it should encourage you knowing that the all-powerful God of the universe has a purpose for you. And and as we move forward in this narrative, it just begins to play itself out more and more. So Jesus, they, they take him 
and uh, they bind him, all right? So they've got him tied up. He's a common criminal. They take him to, to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And so you have these two characters, uh, Annas and Caiaphas. Annas would, uh, and it's, it appears a little confusing. So why, wouldn't you, why would you take him to this guy? Well, this guy at one point was the high priest. But he had been removed from office uh, by uh, the Roman governor who had preceded Pilate, and Caiaphas is put in his place. It, it, it may be that they take him to Annas because this, this whole thing is fabricated. This is a fake, phony trial, right? There are no witnesses, and so it could be they're trying to establish Annas as a witness so they can have some evidence. Yeah. But but so then, that's not actually what happens. Yeah, you, if, if you look further, you see the first account of, of Peter uh, denying Jesus. And I want to actually read the trial, what, what's going on here, um, what happens, starting in verse 19, where Jesus is before Annas. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. I have spoke openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews Congregate, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus, saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, Give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So you, you have these two powerful figures in the life of Israel and Jesus standing in front of them, unwavering, right? He's not intimidated. He, um, he actually is asking for a trial in some ways. He, he says, look, yeah. I didn't hide any of this. Why don't, why don't you go get everybody that listened to me teach and saw me do these things? Where are they? Bring them in here. Can we just talk like a trial? I know you are, you've been called to court a lot of times because of your bad days and we won't get into that. But anyways, when you've been called to court, what time, <laughs> what time do you usually have to go to court? It's usually in the morning or in the afternoon, 9, 12, it, during the day. This trial so is happening right now. at night. <laughs> yes. This yes. trial is Under not happening darkness, in the middle yes. of the day. It's happening in the middle of the night. So just seeing how false this is, but what's interesting is that Jesus hides from nothing. Right. It actually seems like Jesus says, you need to call witnesses. I've spoken openly. Ask these people what I said. Yeah, let's have this trial. And, let's see. And pushed up against that, you have the contrast. John does this intentionally of Peter, right? You have Jesus in front of his accusers, standing, denying nothing. And Peter cowering in front of accusations, denying everything. Look at, look at it. So John, uh, we, we believe the disciple here. So John, uh, there's another disciple mentioned who puts the word in for Peter at the gate. So Peter gets in. And when he gets in, uh, verse uh, 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are also one of this man's disciples, aren't you? He said, I, I, no, I'm not. 
So this is going on the whole time you've got Jesus in front of Annas and Caiaphas. And they, they've got him in front of Caiaphas. John doesn't record that interrogation. The other gospel writers do. But Caiaphas, they can't trap Jesus because he's just, he's just saying, okay, bring some witnesses in here. You're, what have I done wrong? Then Peter denies him again, verse 25. Um, and then the last time, Verse 26, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. One of the most tragic moments in the entire Bible, Peter fulfilling what Jesus promised was going to happen. He says to Peter, remember, he said, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Jesus is in control. He knew it was going to happen. This doesn't catch him off guard and you, you have this contrast between Peter and Jesus, and you've got these accusations. Annas asked Jesus all these questions about his followers. Are you raising up this rebellion? With a great irony, Jesus is standing there bound, none of his followers to be found. In fact, they've all abandoned him. He's alone. This is not much of a rebellion, right? Yeah, and I think when we look at this and we see that Jesus... Uh, hides from nothing and, and Peter hides from everything. Yeah. And we, we want to look at Peter and say, how could you do this? Yeah. You just swore allegiance to Christ a few, probably just hours earlier, and now you're denying him three times. And we want to say, how could you? And really, we want to condemn Peter, but we don't want to weep like Peter. Yeah, Luke, I think it's Luke. I think it's Luke records Peter at that moment, goes outside the gate and weeps bitterly. Like he is, he is broken. Like he realizes, man, the rooster crowed and oh, oh no, what have I done? Um, so the, all of this is going on. They, they've got, they want Jesus dead, right? The religious leaders do, but they don't have any power to kill him. So they take him to Pilate, who's the, who's the, ruling judicial authority and Pilate has the authority to put him to death so that's the next scene they lead Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters it's early in the morning now they don't enter because they don't want to be unclean right we gotta we gotta take care of this we don't want to be unclean so we're gonna we're gonna shove Jesus into there and we're gonna let Pilate take care of him um, and so Pilate Pilate does not like the Jews by the way there's a lot of animosity. Uh, he's, he feels like he's kind of stuck in this, kind of ruling over this little province of these, these Jews who have this weird religion, and he just he doesn't like them. And so there, you can feel the tension in the interaction here. Um, this angry back and forth. Uh, this, yeah. Like right, right here in verse 29, so Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? Saying, I'll, I'll hear out your charges. I'll, I'll listen to what you guys have to say. And then they kind of respond. They answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Basically saying, we just want you to take care of this. Right. You don't need any information. For, just take care of it. Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. 
It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. It's interesting to me, Pilate, I don't know that Pilate had in his mind, well, I got to decide about a death sentence on this guy, but the, but the Jewish leaders are clear. We need him put to death, and you're the only guy that can do it, so take care of it. So Pilate then brings Jesus into his home, and begins to interrogate him. And uh, in verse 33, then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? It's interesting here. We see that Jesus kind of flips the trial right from the get go. Like it's no longer Jesus that's on trial. It's Jesus is putting Pilate on trial, kind of taking control, and Pilate responds, I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, your own nation and the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? And in verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth, said Pilate? Yeah. We don't have anything. So you, you see what's happening here. All these accusations by the religious leaders that Jesus is a blasphemer, well, they can't put him to death for that. They can banish him from the synagogue. They need him gone. Remember, they're afraid that Jesus is gonna get a big enough following that they're gonna lose their power and their place. And so the only way to kill him is to take him to Pilate. Well, Pilate could care less about their religious stuff. Pilate wants to know, are you leading a rebellion? Are you really a king? Jesus never denies being a king. He, he, the word play here is amazing. Uh, when he says, well, my kingdom's not of this world, Pilate's like, wait, so, so you are a king. And Jesus says, I love this, you say that I am a king, but my kingdom's not of this world. I have a different kind of kingdom. It is a kingdom of truth, and anyone who listens to the truth follows me and when Pilate says, what is truth, I, he, I, I don't know that he really actually has any interest in the truth. Maybe he does. But the reality is Jesus doesn't answer him because Jesus is the truth. It's, it's funny to see the two different kingdoms put on display here. Yeah. You have Pilate's kingdom and then you have Jesus' kingdom. One, one's built on, on, on power and glory and violence and I, I am bigger and more important than you. And it's interesting to see the irony of Jesus giving up his glory, coming down onto this earth and dying for us. And so Pilate doesn't know what else to do. So he just goes back out to the Jews and goes, look, I, I can't find any reason to condemn this man. All right. I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate can't get this king thing out of his head, right? King of the Jews. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Well, that's a little bit of an understatement. 
Barabbas was actually the leader of a small rebellion. He's actually guilty of what they're accusing Jesus of. And these guys say, no, 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 no. We don't want Jesus. Set the rebel free. Set Barabbas free. And Pilate turns him loose. And so that's, that's where we end. And we look at this story and we look at this narrative and, and we go, man, that's, man, if this were a movie, we'd be on the edge of our seats, right? There, there's, there's drama, there's intrigue, there's betrayal, there's, I mean, this is intense. And a lot of times as we've worked through John, as Taylor said earlier, there are these deep theological points that we need to pull out and go, this is what we need to do. So what do we do with this? What's the application, if you will? Well, I think we can find the application if we look at one word John uses. And I think the word's going to surprise you a little bit. It's the word garden. Yeah, the word garden. Four books of the New Testament use the word garden. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke use the word garden in a parable Jesus tells about a mustard seed. John does not include that parable, but he uses the word garden four times from chapter 18 through 20. And I think he does it for a purpose. I, I don't so think go, it's an accident. Go back to, to verse one of chapter yeah. 18, flip back, if you will. And in verse one, after Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. Yes. And I want to put on, just kind of display the two different gardens that we see in the Bible. One is here at the Garden of Gethsemane, and the other one is way back at the very beginning of the Bible where we see the first garden with Adam. So, so think with me about this. In Genesis, it tells us God put a garden in Eden. It was a sanctuary. It was a sacred place where he could meet with Adam and Eve. In Gethsemane, there is a garden where Jesus used to meet with his disciples, a sacred place. In uh, Eden, in that garden, God walked into that garden looking for Adam. We know in Gethsemane, the sons of Adam walk into that garden looking for God. In Genesis, Satan comes into the garden to lie and deceive. In Gethsemane, Satan comes into the garden in Judas. Remember in John 13, Satan entered Judas. Judas leads the people into the garden. In Eden, there is life. In Gethsemane, there is death. In the garden of Eden, Adam falls. In the garden in Gethsemane, Jesus stands. In the garden of Eden, Adam hides. In the garden in Gethsemane, Jesus comes out. In the Garden of Eden, the sword of God's wrath is drawn against humanity. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter is told by Jesus, put your sword away. I'm going to drink the cup. I believe John is showing us beyond a shadow of a doubt that what went wrong in the first Garden in Eden is beginning to come unraveled in a Garden in Gethsemane. Where... The second Adam comes face to face with the ancient serpent again, who's about to bruise his heel. Remember that promise in Genesis 3? 
and Jesus in, in ours is going to die. But the Lamb of God is going to roar back to life as the Lion of Judah and crush the head of the serpent. And it's going to happen in a garden. He's, there, if you keep reading in John, here's a spoiler. He's laid in a tomb that's, guess where? In a garden. And Mary and Martha show up. John is the only one that records this. They mistake Jesus as, guess what? The gardener. What was Adam? He was a gardener, right? John is saying loudly, I believe, here is the true and better Adam. And, and when you and I look at this, we can look at this and say, in the darkest moment in the history of mankind, God has been in control. From the moment the serpent first hissed in the garden to this moment, God is in control. This isn't some desperate thing happening. And I think we need to see this, this evidence that Jesus is in control of this event and that everything that's bad in our world is beginning to become unraveled by what's happening in Gethsemane. And it's tragic, and it's going to look worse even before it gets better. But hear this. In your darkest moment, in your worst garden, Jesus is in control. And so what we do with this is we just sit back and look at it and say, as Taylor said already, with John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. Look at Jesus and what he is doing because there's nothing you and I can do. This is out of our control, but he's in control. Behold the Lamb of God. We're going to sing that as we close this morning. So I'm going to ask Dustin to come. And as he's making his way up there, I, I, I want to say this to you. Maybe you're new and checking out this whole Jesus thing. Let me say this to you. The evidence is in front of you, Right? Jesus performed miracles. He made claims. He is who he claimed to be. And John is saying to you, and we want to say to you today, you need to believe this. Believe Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus so that you can have eternal life, so that separation you feel from God can be done away with, and that the wrath of God, the cup that belongs to you, can be consumed by the Son of God. So we, I want to ask you today, as we stand, if you would stand with us right now, if that's you and you need to put your faith in Jesus, Taylor and I will be down front. I want to ask you to come down here and just say, I, I need that. And we'll walk with you through that. But there's a possibility, too, that you're, today, you are in a spot where you just don't believe God is in control. Right? You, you hear it and you go, yeah, I know doctrinally that's true, but I don't feel like God's in control. You don't understand. My life's spinning out of control. I'm in a really dark garden right now. Hear me. What you need to do is acknowledge the truth. Jesus is in control. And maybe you just need to let go of the wheel, right? And say to him, I acknowledge, Jesus, you're in control of this. Help me. And so we're going to sing now. Let me pray for it. Father, thank you for your word and for the truth that uh, 
Jesus, you're in charge. You've always been in charge. There's never been a moment, even before the universe, you were in charge. You were in control. And so as we sing this morning, and behold the Lamb of God, I pray you would make that true in our hearts and our minds and our lives. For the name and fame of Jesus, we pray. Amen.